You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Hi, good morning. My name is Grace Patterson, and today I will be reading Genesis 15, 1 through 21, if you have your Bibles. If not, there should be some in the chairs in front of y'all underneath, so you can look at those. Okay. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid them each over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring shall be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church family. A lot of sights in that passage we'll look at here. Uh, Glad glad you're with us here this morning. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here at Northway. Grateful you're with us. And uh, just as I begin here, let me just thank you again for just your great patience. This is a full room. Our AWV in the Fellowship Hall is a full room and uh, we'll probably be that way for a little while as we continue to get ready to build a new worship center here. Lord willing, breaking ground, God willing, by the end of the year. Um, but in the meantime, some good news is that our friends across the street, uh, Willa and Thomas Jefferson High School, have both graciously now given us their parking lots that will start next week. Um, so, shouldn't have to be a 10-mile walk uh, as much, just a parking lot walk across the way. We'll be communicating more about that this week, what that means for shuttles, maybe hopefully eventually going away for closer parking that's with us. So we'll take the good news while we can get it. Amen? Genesis 15, if you're not there already, this is a incredibly significant chapter. 
um, not only in the narrative of Genesis, but to our own salvation in Jesus Christ. We're going to look at today. But uh, where this began, as we are looking at the story of God's faithfulness and covenant through Abraham, when Genesis 12 began, uh, we saw God make some incredible promises to a 75-year-old man named Abram and his 65-year-old wife named Sarai, who was unable to have any children of their own. And God promised Abram that he was going to provide him a son, that he was going to make him a great nation, that he was going to bless both Abram and all the nations of the earth through the promised offspring who would come, and that God would secure for his people a new land of promise that his descendants would inherit. And all that has been great. By the time we get to chapter 15, though, it has now been about 10 years of Abram following God and waiting on those promises to come. And uh, we've seen some incredible moments of Abram's faith and his journey along the way. But what we're going to see today is that sometimes the hardest part of our own faith in God comes during the long gap between the promise and the provision. And in fact, the longer that gap is, the harder the sufferings in that gap are, the harder it becomes for us to actually believe. And um, you're going to see, uh, it, truthfully, if, if, if God's provision came immediately after the promise, then we wouldn't need faith. It'd just be sight. We'd have it immediately. But it's in the waiting period. It's in that gap where our faith is going to get tested. It's in that waiting period where you're going to face temptations of doubt uh, of discouragement, of disbelief, and even the temptation to disengage from God and the promises that he has made towards you. And I think um, if, if we'll notice this, even in this chapter, one of the blessings in that waiting period, if we'll allow it though, is that is also the period where our, our faith can get forged. Our faith can get formed through that testing. One of the things that I love about this chapter that we're going to read here is you're going to see Abram really wrestle with his doubts and his confusion towards the promises that God has made to him. You're going to see him ask some hard questions of God. You're going to see him start reinterpreting some of the promises of God because why has it been so long? It's got to be something else. You're going to see him wrestle with this in the same way that I think that we do. But one of the encouragements here. One of the things about Abram's doubt here that I think is helpful for us is that his doubt comes from a posture that wants to believe rather than the other kind of doubt that comes from having already chosen to disbelieve. In other words, Abram's not going to be a, um, hey, I'm going to doubt you until you prove it. No, I'm going to trust you until you disprove it. That's the posture of his his faith and his struggles. And I want to show you three things in this text this morning that I think help us in our waiting as we wait on the ultimate promise of God to send his son, Jesus Christ, back to this earth to reinstill, to inaugurate the consummation of all of his promises to make all things new. Three things that helped Abram, three things that are going to help us. And that is 
the comforting assurance of God's word, a rooted belief in God's promise, and our resting in God's unilateral covenant that he has made towards us. Let's look at these three things. First, the comforting assurance of God's word in the midst of waiting between the promise and the provision. See those first three words in verse one? After these things. Remember, Abram had just gotten done with a miraculous rescue of his nephew Lot, had overthrown four major kings and their armies, all by the the miracle grace of God given to him. And then he had that encounter with those two kings at the end of chapter 14, one of which Abram turned down an entire fortune that could have been his. And another king where Abram gave away a fortune that was already his. And I think there's something in that act after these things that begins stirring in Abram some doubts. It's it's in his heart that he begins to wonder, is this whole thing worth it? Is my trust, the sacrifices that I'm making to follow God, am I crazy for believing what he said? And so like a loving, assuring father, God says in verse one, when the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. God can see the anxiety in Abram's heart. And so he addresses it. He reassures him, I got you. And he tells him two things so that Abram wouldn't fear, that he wouldn't doubt or disbelieve. Two things. He says, number one, I'm your shield. I'm your defender. God just got done defending Abram in a physical battle against these kings from the east. And God says, that's the narrative of your whole life. I'm your defender. If you'll put your trust in me. And secondly, he says, your reward shall be very great. I think better translated in the original language would say, I'm your shield and I'm your very great reward. In other words, even though you just gave away a wealth that was yours and you did not take a wealth that could have been yours, what you possess in me, Abram, and what I have coming for you will far outweigh any wealth that the world could ever offer you. So you just hang on. Keep holding to the promise of my word. But notice Abram's response. He still got questions. Verse two, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Behold, you have given me no offspring. Even a member of my own household is going to have to be my heir. I want you to make a note here. These are Abram's first recorded words spoken to God in the book of Genesis. It's not that he hasn't talked to God before. He has, but it's the first time it's recorded. And what we're meant to see is that it's in the form of a question. And notice what's at the heart of his question is that while he's thankful for the reassurance and comfort of God's protection and God's reward, what he wants most is the one thing that God promised that hasn't come, which was a child. That's what's at the heart of it. It's it's Abram saying, God, it's been 10 years. It's been 10 years since you promised me a son. You promised me an heir. I'm 85 now, and I still haven't seen it yet. 
So what exactly is your plan? And you can see the gears moving in Abram's head here because he looks over at his servant, a man whom he had acquired in his household from Damascus, either um, in his battle with Ketelamar or maybe from earlier days, most likely. But this man named Eleazar, he looks at him and he goes, is this my heir? Like you promised me an heir. And so maybe it's this guy. Is that what I'm supposed to think, God? And I think there's two things happening here. One is very common in the ancient Near East and Mesopotamia for a childless couple to go ahead and appoint a servant as their legal heir in the event of their death. That was common through many of the old writings that we've obtained from ancient Near East. And so certainly he, he's aware of that, probably thinking about that, but then there's a play on words going here that you wouldn't catch in the English, but it's there in the Hebrew. The word Damascus, when it's pronounced in Hebrew, sounds like the Hebrew word air. And so literally the phrase heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Sounds like a poem. Don Masek is Ben Masek. That's how it read. Abram's looking at this. He's thinking about this and he's, he's now spiritualizing the literal promise of God. He's allegorizing it. And he's going, wait a minute. It's been 10 years. You haven't given me a son. You haven't given me an heir. Eleazar from Damascus is an heir. Maybe that's what you meant. And that's what he's doing. He's going, is this going to be my heir? Is this what you had in mind the whole time? And you can see that 10 years of unanswered promises causes Abram to start second guessing and reconsidering other possibilities and interpretations that might justify why this delay has been so long. And I think the human heart is on display right here because I do the same thing. And I think if you're honest, you do the same thing as well. When enough time passes and you start thinking, well, maybe this is not exactly what God meant. Maybe he wasn't being literal. Maybe I'm missing something here. Maybe I need to go figure this out on my own. Maybe that's what I'm supposed to do. And what I think is really going on, it's us trying to manipulate the speed of God's provision so that we can obtain the promise quicker than God has purposed. And this can be a dangerous thing. Think about it. We've been waiting on the Lord's return for 2,000 years. And after a while, you start going, well, maybe I read this all wrong. Maybe he's not coming back. Maybe, maybe he already has. Maybe I'm supposed to spiritualize. I'm supposed to allegorize this interpretation. And I, maybe, and that can be dangerous because in that moment, if we're not careful, we can end up settling for something lesser than God had originally planned. And so part of God's comforting assurance to us in the waiting is him taking us back to his word when we drift. Back to his original promise and saying, nothing has changed. My promise still stands as called. I'm simply asking you to wait because I actually have something for you in the waiting that you need to lean into. And so verse four and five, the word of the Lord comes to Abram and he confirms this man, Eleazar, shall not be your heir, Abram. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, look toward the heaven 
and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now, this is the second time that God has given an illustration of his promise. Remember back in chapter 13, he said, your descendants, look at the dust on the ground underneath your feet. So shall your descendants be. Now, a second time, he says, look up at the stars in the heavens. Try to count them. So shall your descendants be. He's going to do this a third time in chapter 22 when he's going to say like the sand on the seashore. So shall your descendants be. So God's comforting assurance to Abram's anxious longing in the waiting is to take him back to the original promise of his word. It's him going, Abraham, if you are going long periods of time without seeing the answer to my promise, it's not because I've forgotten. It's not because you got it wrong. It's because I have something for you. And so I want to remind you of my word so that you can recalibrate your heart and your expectations and your trust. And you and I need that as well. Though we have freely received salvation in Jesus Christ, we've had our sins forgiven through Christ's work on the cross. You and I recognize that the presence of sin is still around us. It's still entangling us. The curse from Genesis 3 is still on this earth. We have bodies that don't work like they should. We have death that is still prevalent all around us. Violence and injustice is all around us. The earth is groaning right now. The physical earth is groaning with horrific calamities like we've seen in the earthquake in Turkey and Syria this past week. And it's been this way for so long. And there's a temptation in our anxious hearts to start looking for other reasons why Christ hasn't returned yet. Other reasons why God's promise may have failed. Maybe we've just misread it. But instead, what God would tell us is we need to go back to his word. We need to be reminded for our comforting reassurance that none of these things have caught him off guard. James chapter one, not if, but when you encounter various trials, they're gonna happen. Romans eight, the earth is groaning right now, longing for its day of redemption with a promise that the present sufferings of this world aren't even worth comparing to the glory that's soon gonna be yours. It's, it's 1 Peter 1 that uh, if for a short period of time you encounter these various trials, none of it has caught God off guard, but his promise still stands. There is a day coming when Christ will return and make all things new. So you just hang in there. Let my word reassure you to keep trusting. So I think that's the first thing that we see here is the assurance of, and comfort of God's word. The second thing though, is that will help us in the waiting is a rooted belief in God's promise. Notice Abram's response in verse six. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Arguably one of the most significant verses in your entire Bible is right here. You will not understand your New Testament without understanding this verse. We have three books in our New Testament that have three entire chapters that are built off this one verse. Romans chapter four, Galatians chapter three, and James chapter two are all built off this one 
verse. This verse here not only speaks to Abraham's faith and his trust in the promise of God, that he believes that God's gonna do what God said, but it also speaks to where it is he derived his righteousness from, where it is he derived his salvation from, the future blessing that God had promised him. And as the father of our faith, the father of faith in general, this verse also shows where our righteousness must derive from as well, where our salvation is derived from. Now, I don't wanna just quote a text. I wanna show you the text. Hold your place here in Genesis 15. Flip to the New Testament. I'm gonna show you one of these passages in Romans chapter four. Turn to Romans four. It's been a while since we're in Romans. So let's do a little refresher here. Romans chapter four. Paul in the book of Romans is arguing that the one thing that we need to be saved, to be rescued from our sin, the one thing that we need happens to be the one thing that none of us possesses. The one thing that none of us can obtain on our own. And that is the righteousness of God. It is sin in our lives that has separated us from God. His holiness cannot allow our sinfulness into his presence. We are contaminated by sin. We are under the curse of God. We are separated. We do not have the righteousness of God that it takes to be um, even with him, to be in his presence. We are lacking it. And so what happens here, Paul is going to show in the book of Romans, there is only one way to obtain that righteousness that we are lacking. And that is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. In Romans 4, Paul goes all the way back to the very one whom every Jew would consider as the founder and the, the father of their faith, and that is Abraham. And Paul will show from just this one verse in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham was able to obtain the ultimate promise of God, which was his salvation, through faith in Jesus alone apart from anything he had done. To get there, Paul is gonna to have to show the Jew that the three things that every Jew is holding on to is a mean for their righteousness. And I would argue three things that every one of us in Dallas, Texas tends to hold on to to obtain righteousness. That he's gonna to have to show those three things have to get ruled out if you're gonna believe Genesis 15, 6. And that is your religious works won't save you. Your religious ceremony and tradition won't save you. And your religious moral law will not save you. That's what Romans 4 is all about, all based on this one verse. just want to read the first eight verses here and talk about this. Notice verse 1 of chapter 4 in Romans. Paul says, what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, According to his flesh, what was gained? For if Abraham was justified, justified is a big term that means to be declared righteous, to be declared holy as God is holy. So what, for if Abraham was justified, if he was declared righteous by works, then he would have something to boast about, just not before God. But what does the scripture say? Abraham, and he quotes Genesis 15, 6. Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but they're counted as what's due him. And to the one who will not work, who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, oh, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And so notice in that text right here, Paul is using Genesis 15, 6 as his proof text. He argues that when a person works, when you go to your job every week, when a person works, your earnings are not counted to you as a gift. They're counted to you as a wage. You worked for them, so you earn them. Now, every Jew thought that their righteousness was obtained by working for it. If I could just do the right things, if I could be the right person, if I could demonstrate enough faith, then I could earn the righteousness of God. But Paul says God didn't look at Abraham over the course of 10 years and say, man, you've worked well. God, you've obeyed so good. You followed everything that I've asked you to do. You're morally upright. So collect your paycheck. You earned it. You earned that righteousness. No, God never did that. No, it says Abram put his trust in God's work, not in his own. And God gifted righteousness to him as a gift. That term counted, Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Some translations say credited. Old King James says reckoned, Texan. That's a bookkeeper's term. That's an accounting term. It means you take a wage that someone else has earned, you don't, someone else has earned it and it's in their bank account and you take that wage out and you transfer it or you impute it into your account as if you had earned it. And then you get to spend that wage as if you were the one who accrued it. This, this is what God did with Abram, put it in his account. This is what happens every week with my daughter at Dallas Baptist University. I get a text every week going, hey, dad, count's low. So you know what I do? I take my money that I have sweat through teaching you on Sundays. And I take it out of my account and I put it in her account. Voila, as if she earned it, which she didn't. She didn't do a dang thing for that money, but it's hers. And she can go spend it like she earned it. I gave it to her as a gift and imputed it in her account. She did not work for it. In the same way, this is what God did with Abram, according to Romans 4. Let me ask you a question for those of you who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Why are you a Christian? Is it because of what you have done? to earn the righteousness of God and the standing that you have before God? Or is it because the work that somebody else has done for you? The answer is Jesus Christ. You are a Christian because you believed that his work was enough, that yours wasn't. And so you put your trust in him and as a gift of grace, God took his righteousness by living the life that you, you couldn't live 
and dying the cross that, on the death on a cross that you deserved, he took his righteousness and he credited it to your account. It is faith, not works, that saves you. And Paul's going to go on, won't read it, but I'll summarize it in verses 9 through 12. He's going to say, so not only is Abraham not saved by his own works, he's not saved by religious ceremony either. When were you counted righteous, Abraham? Genesis 15. When did you get circumcised, Abraham? Genesis 17. 13 years later. Abram was not made righteous through his ceremony of circumcision. That happened 13 years later. In the same way, you are not saved by your baptism. You are not saved by your, by your first communion. You are not saved by your christening. You are not saved by your being brought up in church. You are saved by putting your trust in Jesus Christ and his work. Those ceremonies are important. They can display your faith. They can evidence your faith, but they are not your faith. That comes in Jesus Christ alone. Likewise, in verses 30, 13 to 22 of Romans 4, Paul's going to argue that Abram wasn't saved by law either. He wasn't saved by following the Ten Commandments. How do we know? When was Abraham counted righteous? Chapter 15. When did the Ten Commandments come along? Exodus 20. 430 years later is when the Ten Commandments came along. Abraham wasn't saved by obeying the Ten Commandments. The commandments were never given so that you could look at them and go, oh, that's what I got to do to be saved, I'll do it. No, they were given to show you I'll never be able to do that. I need somebody else to come do that for me. And his name is Jesus Christ. And so Abraham was justified by faith alone, by putting his trust in what God would do for him, not what he would do for God. That's how he was saved. Now, was this justification, this being declared righteous, was it just by faith for Abraham only? No, it's for any of us who would come after Abraham, who would also put our faith in God's provision as well. Look at the very end of Romans 4, starting in verses 23. Look at his conclusion. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. How are you and I saved? How do we obtain the righteousness of God? Is it through our own works, our own religious ceremony, our own keeping of the Ten Commandments? No, it is by us looking back 2,000 years ago to a cross in Jerusalem with Jesus Christ nailed to it, believing that he lived the righteous life we failed to live. He died the death that we deserved to forgive us of our sins and he rose from the grave to give us new life. We are saved by putting our trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And faith in this context, belief in this context is not intellectual assent. It's not just knowing that Jesus did it. It's actually transferring my trust to him. It's, it's knowing him and then giving everything to him and surrendering to him in faith. Now, that is how we are saved. And through that faith, God then puts that righteousness of Christ into our account. How was Abraham saved? How did Abraham obtain righteousness? Not by looking back 2,000 years to the cross, but by looking ahead 2,000 years 
to the cross. Did Abraham know all the details about Jesus Christ? No, but he had the promise that his righteousness would not be earned through his own works, but his righteousness would be received miraculously through God's provision, and he put his trust in it. By the way, this is how Romans 3 says, every Old Testament saint is saved through Jesus Christ. By looking ahead, God credits their accounts like they give them a credit card of salvation. You can't pay it, so I'm gonna pay it for you, but that balance is there and it's gotta be paid. Somebody's gotta pay off that credit card. 2,000 years later, that cash got clear, that check got cleared. That cash got deposited in that account. That credit card got paid off through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. So Abram was saved by looking ahead. You and I are saved by looking back. So in the waiting between the promise and the provision, we are anchored not only by the assurance of God's word, the comforting assurance of God's word, we are also anchored by a rooted faith that is not dependent upon us, but is rooted in Jesus Christ alone. Not by our works, not by our performance. You don't make it through this waiting period by trying to perform for God's favor. You make it through by believing that he has worked for you and that any good works from you come as the result of that grace, not for it. Now turn back to Genesis 15. We're gonna close out this chapter. Third, third anchor point here comforting assurance in God's word, rootedness of belief in God's promise. And now third, what we're going to see that will help us through this waiting period is a resting in God's unilateral covenant. The final scene of Genesis 15, it's a peculiar one to us, but one that could have been totally quite common in the ancient Near East in Mesopotamia. Whenever someone wanted to make an oath to someone else, you wanted to make a promise to somebody else, that verbal promise, that verbal oath would always be followed by a visible, bloody ceremony as a means of ratifying that promise, ratifying that oath. This particular ceremony is called a covenant ceremony. A covenant is an unbreakable promise regardless of circumstances. And so God begins with these words in verse seven. He said to them, I am the Lord who brought you out of, uh, from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Now those words right there would have sounded awfully familiar to the original readers who were reading this text the first time, the Israelites who had just come out of the Exodus from Egypt. They're reading that. That sounds like the same words that God used in Exodus 20 in the giving of the Mosaic covenant to Moses, the 10 commandments, when he said, I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. I'm reminding you of the one who initiated and carried you through. This is covenantal language. And now God is going to reiterate the promise of this new land that he swore to Abram. And he's going to do so in the form of a covenant. But notice first, Abraham is a question. He's still wrestling. So important to see this. He's still wrestling. In verse eight, Abraham says, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I'm going to possess this land? That my descendants are going to possess this land? How, how are we going to know this? In other words, how will I know that you're going to keep your promise? And God says, I'm glad you asked. Let me show you by ratifying this promise in a way that Abram would have understood. 
And in verses nine through 10, he tells him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought all these to him and he cut them in half and laid them each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. This is a weird ceremony to us, let's be honest. Not quite we're seeing this. I mean, this isn't quite field dressing on a deer hunt. This is something different that's going on right here. But it was totally common in Abram's day. Happened all the time in the ancient Near East. Two parties would come together to make an agreement. They would make an oath. Maybe it's over land. Maybe it's over possessions. Maybe it's over uh, family members or something. And they would make a, 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 a contract together, a covenant together, a, 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 a binding promise. And how they would ratify that is through a ceremony. They would take these animals, they'd usually take a heifer, they'd cut it in half, sometimes head to toe. And they would take the two parts and lay them on sides with a bloody aisle down the middle. And then both parties who are making that contract would walk together through the parts in the blood. And there was a lot of other things to the ceremony, exchanging of garments and a belt and all this stuff, kind of the equivalent of us shaking hands on it. And they would meet in the middle and they would agree on the, on the conditions of the, the oath. And then essentially what they were saying in ratification was, if either of us fails to up, up, uh, uphold our end of this agreement, may it be done to us what was just done to these animals. That was a covenant. And this was called a cutting of a covenant, literally. We use the term today to cut a deal. That's where that comes from, is right here. But a couple of things make this covenant different. God has Abram gather five animals, each three years old, that'd be the age of maturity. Why five animals? A lot of speculation here, but most scholars agree that these animals were foreshadowing the animals that would later be used in the Levitical sacrificial system, of which the current readers had just experienced these same five animals are going to be used in Israel's sacrifices to make atonement for sins. They had just seen that inaugurated and they're reading about it here. And these, uh, just as these animals are foreshadowing the sacrificial system that will come, we know from the book of Hebrews that the entire sacrificial system was ultimately foreshadowing Jesus Christ, God's lamb who would be sacrificed for our forgiveness and atonement. And so this is pointing us to Jesus and the sacrifice that would come. But then something else interesting happens, verse 11 through 16. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years and I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age and then they, your descendants, shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So you have first 
in verse 11, these like birds of prey, these vultures come in immediately when the animals are sacrificed and start trying to feast on these animals. And Abram's got to shoo them away. And then it's followed by this prophecy of some hard times that are going to come upon God's people. And I think these two things are connected. It's believed the birds of prey are representative of the threats that are going to come against the covenantal promise of God. The demonic threats fueled through the nations around them, namely Egypt and then the Canaanites, who are going to try to make war with Israel against the promises of God. And Abram shooing them away is prophetic that no matter what threats may come, God's promise will be unthwarted. God's promise is invincible. And then is followed by this prophecy that God tells Abram seven things are about to happen in the coming years. One, your descendants will sojourn in a land that's not theirs. That's going to be Egypt. They would be slaves in that land. That's going to be under Pharaoh. They would be afflicted for 400 years. God would judge the nation that they served. That's the plagues. Israel would leave that nation with great possessions. That's the Exodus and through the Red Sea. Abram would not take part in any of this suffering because he's going to die before it happens. And then seventhly, his descendants, though they suffer much, they're going to come back and they're going to inherit this land of promise. That is in the book of Joshua. In other words, the birds of prey, Egypt and the Canaanites, are going to come and try to stop the promise, but nothing's going to do it. This would have, by the way, brought great encouragement. Think about this. To the original readers who are reading this, who had just gone through six of those seven promises and saw God do every one of them. And what does that leave them saying? Then what's going to stop them from doing the seventh? We're about to go in through Jericho under Joshua. God's going to give us this land. And so beautiful encouragement to them, proof that the promises of God are invincible. But in order to ratify all this, now God does something special. And here's the rest of the chapter. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And so rather, here's what's interesting, rather than a two-way covenant that was common in that land where two parties agreed and walked through the parts, God puts Abram to sleep. He makes him rest and he alone passes through the parts. God appears here as a theophany. There's two images that were given, a smoking pot, think about a Dutch oven in your campsite, and a flaming torch, think about a tiki torch. Smoke and fire, why those images of God? Well, first of all, consider the original audience that's reading this. And for the, uh, how had God appeared to them the last 40 years plus wandering through the wilderness as a cloud of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. This is representative of the light and the purified holiness and glory of God. What we're meant to see here though, and certainly what Abraham would have woken up to is the reality that only one passed through the parts, not two. Just God, not Abram. Remember, Abram asks in verse eight, show me how this promise will happen. And God emphatically answers through this ratification covenant 
by my work alone, not yours. Abram had nothing to do with the fulfillment of God's promise. This is an unconditional, unilateral, that means one-way covenant that God has made with his people. His promise of an offspring in whom all the nations will be blessed and the land that will be inherited for Abram's descendants, which by the way, there is debate on the land. Even today, there's debate on the land. Some feel that Israel got very close to those boundaries that God mentioned under David's rule and therefore it was fulfilled. Others look at it and go, no, even today, Israel only has about 10% of the land that God promised them. And Others therefore feel that maybe these promises were spiritually fulfilled in Jesus Christ and his sacrificial presence. And still others hold that one day this promise will, if it hasn't already been, will be literally fulfilled when the Messiah returns. Either way, Abram believed and he waited. 25 years before his son Isaac would come, 430 years before his descendants would inherit the land, 2,000 years before the object of his righteousness, Jesus Christ, the promised offspring would come and his righteousness would be credited there, final and full. What helps us in our waiting is to know that God's ultimate provision of his promise towards us does not ride on our backs that we can rest in his unilateral covenant, that he has swore upon his own name, that came due when Jesus came. Let me ask this question. Can God renege on his promise to you and me? Can God drop the ball on his promise to you and me? Maybe a better question to ask is, can God sin? Can God lie? And the answer is no. In fact, he went on to cut an even better covenant towards us when he sent his own son as the ultimate sacrifice. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, then how will he not also, along with him, freely give us everything else that has been promised to you? You think God is gonna send his own son to the cross to die and then drop the ball on you on the back end? No. If he's willing to give you his own son, you can trust he's going to go all the way to the end. And therefore, so can you. So you hang on. Church, how you doing in the waiting? It's been 2,000 years since Jesus promised he would return and bring about the final consummation of our hope. Are you tired? Are you weary? Are you wrestling with doubts? Do you still have questions? If so, that's okay. So did Abram. But let us, like Abram, receive the comforting assurance of God's word that he's got us. He is your shield. He is your reward. You hang in there. Hold fast to our rooted belief in God's promise of redemption and restoration. Holding fast the confession of our faith that our salvation is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from our works. And let us rest in God's unilateral covenant that what he began, he will be faithful to finish. Why? Because as the author of Hebrews says, for he who promised is faithful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your unrelenting, unilateral promise and covenant towards us in Jesus Christ. Thank you that on our hardest days of waiting, those long gaps 
where it feels like this just isn't happening, that we can turn to the reassuring comfort of the promises of your word, that you weren't lying, that we didn't get it wrong, that it's still going to happen. Help us then by faith, root our belief in you and not in us or our circumstances. Let us trust and know of the righteousness that we have already received by grace. Let any good works that we may have be motivated by the grace that we have already received in your promise rather than some sort of man or woman-centered effort to try to obtain it, which is futile. And God, may we rest like Abram of old, knowing that no matter our circumstances, no matter the suffering, your promises will not be thwarted. They are invincible. So Lord, to your glory and for our good, may we rest and wait in this rooted faith of hope. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.